My name is June Lee. If you guys listen to this podcast, I assume most of you are readers or consistent readers of the Hardball Times, and I have no doubt that you probably saw the story from Friday on the website uh, by Tim Healy. It was the oral history of the Doug Muir belly trade, and uh, in many ways, the story kind of blew up. And Tim is is one of my good friends from uh, from school, and uh, I, I went to. BU, Boston University, my freshman year, and uh, Tim was a senior. And so T- Tim and I hung out a bunch and uh, worked for the same student newspaper. And so Tim wrote this really, really great, hilarious, uh, fascinating oral history about the infamous, especially to Red Sox fans, the the Doug Meir belly trade. And that trade in many ways was unique in its circumstances uh, for a variety of reasons. And so Tim kind of talked to a bunch of people who were involved in that trade. And there was a, a bunch of really fun behind the scenes stuff when it came to uh to negotiation and, and all that good stuff so i had him on the show this week and we talked about uh, how he put together the story and we also talked about kind of baseball and, and journalism and and a whole bunch of other things if this is your first time listening to the show make sure to head over to itunes especially if you're on an apple device and hit the subscribe button to stay up to date with all the episodes we have a pretty exciting guest i think next week and if not next week the week after that uh, so make sure to stay tuned for that and, uh, make sure to leave a rating for the show on iTunes as well. And, uh, without further ado, this is Tim Healy. I uh, hope you guys enjoy. You are a melody. I hear you all the time. It really gets to me. It's always on my mind. You are my favorite song. Your love is justified. Today on the show, we've got my friend uh, Tim Healy on the show. Tim, how are how are things? Great, June. How are you? I'm doing I'm doing fantastic. I've got a couple of exams coming up this week and some essays, so that's not that's not pleasant. But uh, things are going well otherwise. That is, that is not pleasant. Um, Tim Tim worked on this uh, this great story uh, this uh, this over the last couple of months, and it was uh, it was published on the Hardball Times this past Friday, and it was basically uh, an oral history of the Doug Muir belly trade, um, which is kind of infamous infamous in uh, in many regards to to a lot of Red Sox fans. And uh, t- Tim is one of my uh, is uh, one of my good journalism friends from uh, Boston University, so I thought I, I would bring him on the show to just have him talk about the process and uh, and what that was all about. So uh, Tim. I mean, how did you how did you come up with the story, and uh, how did it end up at the uh, Hardball Times? It was something that I wanted to do for more than a year now, and I thought, you know, the 10-year anniversary makes sense for this sort of thing. So I've just kind of been sitting on it for a long time, hoping nobody else does anything similar. And then uh, over the last month, maybe five or six weeks, really started to, you know, really put it together. So what... What kind of was the the impetus for, for that story? I mean, like, what what kind of planted that idea in your mind? Uh, well, I, like so many others, uh, so many other New Englanders and so many other people who follow the Red Sox, I remember when the Doug Mayer belly trade happened and the police had to Fenway in the game against the Yankees, uh, and it was just the most ridiculous thing. And ever since then, it's been that it's been the sort of a random event in Red Sox history where people say, "Hey." Remember when that happened? <laughs> and everybody's like, oh, yeah, that was awesome. And so I just really wanted to kind of get the backstory 
and maybe you know the untold story in for, as far as some details go uh, as to how that all came together. I thought, I mean, just like I remember when Mirabella was traded. I mean, that was a good trade initially for the Red Sox because they got Mark Loretta out of it, and Loretta was sure. was, was like a, a borderline all. He was an All Star that year, I think, for the Red Sox. He, he was an All Star in 2006. That's the best part. It, it worked out great for the Red Sox. Yeah. So like the fact that they had traded this like not really good offensive catcher who really only caught knuckleballs for the Red Sox and traded him from All Star second baseman. That was basically a steal. And the fact that like they right. sent, sent Mirabelli back for for Clay Meredith, who like turned into a really good reliever. Um, and Josh Bard, who I think like ended up hitting pretty well in the in the first couple of months in uh in San Diego, yeah. it was just like hysterical. Yeah, yeah. Bard had, actually had a, you know, I didn't really do a post mortem where they now sort of thing in the story, but Bard had a couple of good years in San Diego, and all things considered, had a ten year career in the big leagues, and now he's a bullpen coach for the Dodgers. So things very much so worked out for him. So what is kind of the pro- reporting process for that story? Like, where did you start? Uh, well, I started in January, was which was sort of a, a one-off. I covered Theo Epstein's charity event at Paradise over here in Boston, just a, a hot stove, his hot stove cool music event, which raises money for his foundation to be named later. And I, knowing that I wanted to do the story, I after he talked to the media, I said, "Hey, I want to write about such and such, such and such event. Do you have an extra five minutes right now to uh, you know knock off this interview?" And he did. Actually, he said, what's the topic? And I said, the Doug Mabrelli trade. And he kind of smiled and acquiesced. So, uh, and then, so that was my first interview for the story. And he told me the Josh Beckett story about how he accidentally called Josh Beckett instead of Josh Bard. And, and he called the Mabrelli trade, uh, you know, the worst one that he's ever done. And uh, so that was a, a good start to the reporting process. Yeah, I think it's really funny that Theo looks back at it and, and calls it the, the worst trade of his career because I think – I think for a lot of people who follow baseball now, especially like Theo, is considered one of the most you know uh, even keeled, uh, thoughtful general managers out there. Is generally not reactive. Like when the Cubs were were stinking through things the first couple of years, he didn't he didn't make any reactive trades and, and dealt deal away all the prospects. And now you know things are, are doing pretty going pretty well over there in Chicago. Absolutely, and he, he's one of the. I would say one of the brand name managers these days, but one of the guys who always stresses uh, process over results. And, you know, in the comments section, you can see there are, there's no shortage of other trades that you could, in hindsight, point to as his worst, maybe the Royal for Willie Mopena oh, or Eric Ga- <laughs> the, the Eric Gagne trade was another one that came up. Uh, but in terms of valuing the process, this was a poor one from his perspective. And that he got wrapped up in the uh, got wrapped up in the concern that surrounded Josh Bard and yeah. his inability to catch the knuckle. Which is interesting to look back at now, considering that you know Kevin Cash was eventually able to catch the knuckleball, and now we have Stephen with the Red Sox have Stephen Wright in the organization, and you've had both sure. Blake Swihart and Christian Vasquez and uh, I mean Ryan Hannigan all catch the knuckleball at some point. So the fact that like. Everybody was kind of focused on Mirabelli as like this only guy who can catch the knuckleball. I think is just kind of hysterical, right. and I think that just adds to the legend of Doug Mirabelli, which is just <laughs> fantastic. And the fact that like he was just kind of you get a home run from him every once in a while, and then every fifth day you would see him catching Wakefield's knuckleball. Right, right. So I mean, once you get Theo, what is kind of the what is your your game plan for reporting that story? 
Uh, well, once I got Theo, I waited a little while. And then when it became more timely, I pitched it to Paul Swyden, who, of course, is the editor here for the Hardball Times. Uh, and then he, he loved it. He, I'm pretty sure I emailed him close to midnight on a Friday night, and he got back to me, I think, five minutes later <laughs> saying he loved it. So I thought that that was also a good start. Uh, and then I just started reaching out to that started reaching out to, you know, the various people that I wanted to talk to through usually their current employers. So, you know, Kevin Towers, for instance, I reached out to the Reds. They put me in touch with him. Uh, the Red Sox put me in touch with Jack McCormick, the traveling secretary. Uh, I got in touch with Josh Bard through his agent. So just, you know, various routes that way. Uh, I, I didn't get to talk to everybody that I reached out to. Couldn't get in touch with Josh Beckett, which would have been great. But, uh. um... It, it was mostly successful as far as that goes in terms of, you know, response rate and uh, eventually getting folks on the phone. What was the most interesting eye-opening interview for you? Uh, whether I mean, not even just like considering the, the quotes you got, but just like, you know, I, I know you grew up a Red Sox fan. So like for you, what was kind of the most rewarding, interesting one? Huh. Uh, I was really I, – I, I have two answers here. Uh, one is Mirabelli. He was a little reluctant at first to talk. I I can't remember where I read it, maybe multiple places, but he's sort of in his retirement, you know, obviously become a private citizen, not really into the media or giving interviews side of things. So I was happy that I got him on the not only on the phone, but on the phone for half an hour, and he was very open and really gave me the play-by-play on the day. Uh, so that was a good one. And I was also really interested in the, the Kevin Towers side of things. He was uh, you know, in terms of how the trade developed, you know, when I got Theo, obviously that's one side of it, and that was that was a different environment. It was a quicker interview, but with Kevin Towers, it was more open-ended time-wise, and I was able to get more details on how the trade actually came together, mm-hmm. including the fact that Mirabelli was openly expressing his desire to return to Boston while he was with the Padres, which is a unique situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, or an unusual situation, at least. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. The Kevin I mean, Towers' interview was pretty enlightening. I mean, I thought I thought the most interesting stuff that Towers kind of talked about was just how he openly talked about uh, playing the Yankees off the Red Sox and trying to get them to up the offer. And I thought that was a really interesting insight into just the inner workings of how transactions work in baseball. Absolutely, and I think you know people within baseball that ha- that's got to happen all the time, and I think it's understood for people who follow the sport. Sure. You know, especially when it's your rival team, uh, that's just part of the gamesmanship of running a Major League Baseball team, you know what I mean? But to actually hear him say it, hear Kevin Towers say it, and then hear Brian Cashman say, yeah, that's what happened, and I've done it in, you know, X other examples, uh, it was kind of funny to hear after the fact. Uh, what was kind of... When when you were getting in touch with Mirabelli, he's obviously I think he's a real estate agent now. What was what was your uh, what was kind of your approach to that interview, and what was what were some of the the takeaways that you thought were interesting that you didn't really know going in? Uh, my approach to the interview once I got him on the phone. Yeah. Uh, well, basically, what I wanted from him, since you know the oral history is a retelling of the day, and he was the only person who lived the day beginning to end uh i want really wanted to get as many details as possible 
And fortunately, after a couple of questions, he just kind of went one to the other to the other to the other, and I kind of had to stop asking questions, just let him roll with it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, in terms of a couple takeaways, do you mean in terms of uh, memorable details? or? Yeah, I mean, just like, yeah, in terms of what, what, what kind of surprised you? What surprised me was, uh, well, I mean, the whole the whole scenario is kind of surprising, even though we all know it. To hear it put together, to to hear him say, or to paraphrase the pilot, that they had more uh, clearance over airspace than hearts and lungs, and that 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 surprised me. Uh, what also surprised me was. Uh, Mirabelli was a little reluctant at first to give the interview, as I mentioned, and just because he was worried about how he would be portrayed. And obviously, you know, he's a longtime fan favorite in Boston. But it was interesting that, you know, all these years after the fact, uh, since his retirement, since the trade, and a guy who's very popular here, even then, he's still worried. Not not worried. Maybe worried's not a good word for it, but still... Uh, mindful of how he's going to be portrayed i thought that was interesting mm-hmm. um i think i think the the format of the or history in general is kind of an interesting one is not i mean it's not widely used on a day-to-day basis what what for you was the the uh the reason behind using the oral history as kind of the the framework for telling the story i am generally skeptical of oral histories and this was the first one i'd ever done you know, I, this was the first time I'd ever used the format, but I thought that since the appeal of this story is simply that day, that moment in time, that a mere retelling of the day was the best way to do it, as opposed to, you know, some sort of how has it affected people since, or, you know, it, it, basically what's interesting about the story is the play-by-play of it, as opposed to any other long-term ramifications, you know, it's just that 16 hours or so. Uh, so I thought the best way to do that would just to be straight up telling how it happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what, when, once you have like all the transcripts and everything, what is kind of, what was kind of the writing process? Uh, how did you, like from beginning to end, like how long did that take and, and how were you kind of uh, figuring out how you wanted to order quotes and, and all that stuff? Uh, a lot of tweaking. I, when I write, I do a lot of tweaking as it is. So I think a lot of what I did here was I, I jumped around all over the place. I knew I had a couple different sections I wanted to do. One was the negotiations and then the travel and then the game. And at first I actually had a fourth section uh, called the, uh, the adjustments about, you know, everybody's April... Mirabelli in San Diego, Bart in Boston, and so on. But I ended up scrapping that, just throwing a couple graphs and a couple, couple paragraphs about it in the top of the story, and then starting the first section as the negotiations. And then uh, one night when I was actually, you know, had all the transcripts and was putting it together, uh, the travel was the section that I worked on first. Just kind of wanted to knock that out and really give myself the feeling of having been productive, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I just, you know, it's getting quotes in that chronological order and then deciding which ones you don't really need, which ones are repetitive, which order makes most sense where there isn't a clear cut, this happened bef- before that, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. 
so, yeah, so I did the travel, and then I think I moved on to the negotiations, you know, jumping around, and then finally wrapping up with the game. And then actually, after I had everything done in the order that I wanted, some people who hadn't called me back started to call me back. So then I would just go in and insert their quotes where it made sense. Mm -hmm. Um, What was the, uh, for you, the the biggest difference between kind of writing an oral history versus writing, you know, your regular game story, your regular feature story? Was, did did you think that, I mean, did you kind of feel like there was a a difference in kind of how you approached the article because it was a, an oral history versus, you know, a regular narrative kind of story? Yes. Uh, There were a lot of differences, mostly because with the oral history, it's their words as opposed to mine. Uh, You know, I wrote a few hundred words at the top of the story, just kind of introducing the topic and setting it all up. And then a sentence here, a sentence there through the rest of it for the most, but for the most part, it's their quotes. Uh, So that was really different. So when people comment, complimented me like, Oh, this is, you know, great writing or whatever. I'm like, well, you know, I, I didn't actually do that much writing. <laughs> I just, I just, I just recorded what people said mm-hmm. and then, uh, and then put it in order. Uh, and then when I was, and then when I was, you know, when I was doing the interviewing, uh, it was different because a lot of times I think about the order of my questions and how I'm phrasing my questions, things along those lines. But for these interviews on this topic, I mostly just, wanted to get the day beginning to end so that i guess that was that was much simpler were you surprised by the the social media reaction to the story i mean they got picked up by deadspin and a bunch of other places and it was uh very well received in general by by tons of people it 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 was and i i was surprised i thought it would be popular because of that again one of those days where people say hey remember when that happened so i thought red sox twitter would like it and maybe baseball Twitter a little bit too, but I did not think it would have the uh, widespread appeal and success that it apparently did. You know, there was people, a a lot of people I knew tweeted it. I was very thankful for that. And then a ton of people that I have no idea who they are, but, uh, you know, with a ton of followers tweeting it out, which was always cool to see. Uh, What, I mean, when you, when you see that reaction, uh, what does, uh, what does that kind of mean for, mean to you? Uh, it, it was cool. I thought, uh, you know, most of Friday afternoon it was happening fast and I could really keep up with it while I was trying to do other things. Uh, I was going to nap Friday, but that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, it was, it's, it's nice to, uh, you know, to work on a project like this, uh, you know, maybe projects to big of a word for what it really is just you know a small and all things considered a very small story in the grand scheme of baseball and life but uh it it was it was uh, i i'll put i'll put it this way and i put it this way to other people i had a lot of fun putting it together so i was glad that people seemed to enjoy reading it so we'll get back to Tim in just one second but first a word from our friends over at SeatGeek with baseball and summer coming up I know all of you guys are looking for the best way to find the cheapest tickets and the easiest way to find the cheapest tickets to games or concerts. And SeatGeek is the only place I ever go to look for tickets 
to a game or a concert. SeatGeek has taken all the work and hassle out of shopping for tickets. They pull all the tickets available on other sites into one place so you can save time and never miss a deal. You can even set alerts for upcoming games and SeatGeek will let you know if ticket prices fall. Even better, every single ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on value so you can immediately find underpriced seats. And before you buy, you can use SeatGeek's detailed maps to view the view from the seat. Best of all, SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the ticket price, and unlike StubHub, SeatGeek shows you the full ticket price from start to finish and never surprises you with huge fees at checkout, and which really jack up the price at the end of the day. Listeners to Doing It For Bartolo can get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. So in order to do that, to get your $20 rebate, download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab, and click add a promo code. And then you enter the promo code Bartolo. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you made your first ticket purchase. So make sure to download the free SeatGeek app today and enter the promo code Bartolo and get your $20 rebate and get your tickets to a game or concert this summer. Uh, make sure to, to support the guys over at SeatGeek because they're supporting the show. And without further ado, we're back to Tim Healy. Uh, you you obviously have a lot of th- other things going on um, with... Uh, with your work as at Sports on Earth and and uh, working for the Globe, doing doing this and that, um, how did you kind of balance uh, the work on this versus you know your your other your other paid responsibilities? <laughs> uh, I, in my week, I have certain gaps that are generally open, so I knew you know say Wednesday day, Thursday day, or Tuesday night. You know, I know where I have a few hours where I can sit down and uh, put a dent in another project that I don't have. That's not in my, not necessarily in my week-to-week routine. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, I mean, just personally speaking, like I, I remember you told me that you were writing, you and Paul both told me that you were writing the story uh, when we are hanging out yeah. at Eagles. And I remember, yeah. I remember thinking, holy crap, this story is going to be huge because it is just like the perfect tone of like irreverent in the grand scheme of baseball, but it's just like such a ridiculous, funny story that an oral history I just knew yeah. would be perfect for it. Right, right. And, and that's sort of why I wanted to experiment or take my first dip into the oral history format with this, because it was just a perfectly, I think, I, you know, put it well, John Tomasi from WEI.com called it delightfully random. <laughs> and that's exactly, that's, that's exactly what it is. It's just, it's so random and obscure, but so warmly remembered. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like I, I, Tim, I really, really enjoyed it. So, uh, congrats on that. I mean, I think one of the highest uh, compliments another writer can pay is being like, Oh, I wish I did that story. And that's exactly how I feel. When I when I remember you told me that you were doing this, so um, thank you. Yeah. Um, moving on from that, though, I mean, uh, you know, we 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 overlapped at BU for one year. You were a senior, and that was my freshman year of college, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of? And you were in you were in com, obviously majoring in journalism. What was uh, what was for you? What was kind of the the reasoning behind? Uh, I mean, why did you want to pursue journalism? I got involved in, with my high school paper, the Harris Herald at Danbury High School in Danbury, Connecticut. Shout out to them. Uh, and I was just, you know, in high school, I was the newspaper nurse. <laughs> and I knew that I wanted to major in journalism and go into journalism. And I just never really stopped doing that. 
What I mean, did you did I assume you you like read the newspaper growing up? What was uh I mean, what were kind of who were kind of uh, your your inspirations in terms of uh, people you looked up to? Uh, well, it, it's got to be you know growing up in Connecticut. I grew up following the Red Sox mostly. Actually, to be honest, I grew up in was Yankees territory, so I followed both teams. But um, I remember my first favorite beat writer that I read, and this was going way back, was Ian Brown at MLB.com. And then, uh, you know, and RedSox.com, because, you know, you're in middle school and you just go to RedSox.com and read whatever's there. (laughs) (laughs) And then then since then, you know, as I've become very, as I've become more aware of the industry, obviously, once I got to college, uh, you just start following, you you start to pick up on who – your favorites are and who's really good and who's doing something different. Uh, and I've been lucky to work on some of those people. I think one of the first guys that comes to mind is Alex Spear, who's obviously very good at what he does. Oh, I was nice. lucky enough to, I was lucky enough to work under him one summer at WEI. Uh, so there are, there, there's a long list of people that I really enjoy reading. Alex is, Alex is just one of my, I think I've said this before in the podcast, but Alex is just like one of my favorite people <laughs> on the planet beyond just like yeah. his baseball writing, which is unbelievable. But Alex is just such a great human being. Can confirm. Yes. <laughs> um, who, I mean, who else do you like to read on a, on a daily basis or just like it, on a regular basis? Uh, I, I mean, I don't know if I'm going to have any unique answers here. It's going to be some, some cop-outs, but Jonah Carey, uh, formerly of Grantland, of course. But, uh, and a former guest of the podcast. Then, yes, yes, of course. Uh, and then being in Boston, I'm privy to some of the very good beat writers that we have here. Uh, you know, you got the Providence Journal guys, Evan Drellick at the Herald now. Uh, and I'm sure I'm leaving somebody out, so I don't mean to slight them, but it's obviously a very competitive and very talented beat. Uh, beyond that, there's a, you know, beat writing is right now what I want to do. So in terms of beat writers that I follow and beat writers that I think very highly of, uh, Anthony DeComo, I'm biased, but I worked under him one summer too, MLB.com covering the Mets. He's very good at what he does. Uh, who else is there? Uh, Andy McCullough, you know, he's bounced around from the New York market to Kansas City, now to L.A. Uh, yeah, that'll, uh, I mean, that's far from a complete list, but uh, those are the first guys that come to mind. <laughs> um, obviously, baseball beat writing, especially now, is kind of this extremely, extremely demanding job. Uh, it's like, it's basically 24 seven for three quarters of the year. Uh, yeah. what, what makes you want to jump in and, and join the crazies of the, the baseball beat writers who do this on a full-time basis? Uh, I think obviously it's, it's a very busy job. If you're lucky enough to have the job, uh, those positions are clearly very competitive and very tough to come by. Uh, but when it comes down to it, you're getting paid to write and watch about baseball, which it's a pretty I great life. Is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and which to me is the bottom line. And when things get tough, or you didn't really get to sleep the night before, you just have to remind yourself: I am watching sports 
and then I'm going to write about sports, and I'm going to get paid to do it. And that's kind just, of hilarious, to be yeah. honest. Yeah, I mean, like, sometimes I'll just be, like, on Twitter or just watching baseball, and, I, and, and obviously I'm not I'm not getting paid to do it now, but I, I just, like, looking looking ahead into the future, I'm just like, holy crap, like, this is going to be my job, fingers crossed. Like, right, right. Watching, watching some guys, you know, hit hit balls with sticks. Like that is literally going to be my job, and I'm going to get paid to do it, which is insane. I think it's, I think it's crazy. Right. It's comical. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's like it's like a fantasy, which is uh, I mean, I'm just like I'm, I'm just, I mean, we're both we're both pretty young guys in terms of the the context of the journalism industry. Um, sure. And I think it's been kind of interesting to watch over the last. You know, since since just kind of the blow up of Twitter and uh, the twenty four hour news cycle, and and sports like becoming more than just sports, like sports is just this enormous niche now, uh, and so many yeah. people pay attention to it, and there's so much money in in sports. Um, that I'm just like very curious to see where if there is a money burst in sports, because sports is just like obvious is is obviously the last thing on tv that people need to watch in the moment so I'm, I'm very curious to see whether or not there's like a burst in a bubble burst like similar to the tech burst because there's just so much money being thrown around uh in the industry right now uh not necessarily journalism but just like the sports industry as a whole you mean in terms of like contracts and, and team payrolls and things like that well there's that which I think will like continue to go up. Like I, I fully expect Bryce Harper to sign like a fifty million annual yeah. contract or something. But just in terms of like TV deals and how, uh, just like the media landscape as a whole changes. Well, I think those two are connected because obviously right now the influx of money in the baseball and the very quickly rising annual salaries for the players is uh, largely tied to huge contract deals. You know, in the regional sports networks and whatnot. But, and I don't know where this is going to go. I don't think anybody can say honestly that they know where this is going to go. With people, you know, cutting cords, as they say, the cord cutters who ditch the cable in, in favor of Hulu and Netflix and whatever else, you know, where does that leave sports? I guess we'll find out, you know what I mean? In a year, five years, or ten years down the line, I don't know where it's going to go. But uh, obviously... TV is where the money is right now, and whether that remains the case or whether we shift to a new model of how people consume baseball, we'll find out. You know what I mean? I think it's I think it's interesting with the internet. I think a lot of the other sports have become much more national. I think football uh, on a on a Sunday basis, on a weekly basis, is a national sport, and everybody's caring about almost every single game a lot because of football mm-hmm. and gambling. Uh, and, and I think basketball is very much the same way as well. But I also, it's been interesting to see that baseball has become, I think, much more localized over the last couple of years. And even though it's becoming more localized and these national games aren't having uh, as good ratings as they, as they did in the past, the local ratings are still really, really great. And just, there's just endless money being thrown around uh, for the rights to, to have these baseball games on sports networks. Right, right. And I mean, you know, obviously the ratings for football are far and away better than where they are for baseball, at least on a game versus game basis. But uh, I mean, I guess we'll see what happens with 
baseball's various efforts to, you know, do things like cut the game shorter, learn younger viewers, things like that. Like, I, I'm, uh, how do you consume baseball? Because uh, I think I, I think there's a there's obviously going to be a generation gap between like the way people just watch the sport as a whole. But how do you watch baseball on a daily basis? Usually on my TV with Twitter on my phone or on the computer. Mm-hmm. I've I've had gone through periods of my life where I've had MLB TV, but I don't right now, and I I haven't in a few years. But so right now it's just you know living in Boston. It's, I have Nesson and watch the Red Sox or whatever nationally televised games might be on, and then of course you know Twitter or MLB Game Day as your uh, second screen there. I'm I'm really interested to see if with the cord cutting the local the local blackouts start to get worked out and eventually when I assume in like 20 years when there's just not really a business for cable uh, people are just watching baseball through MLB TV and um, and are watching the local games on there because that's how I consume most of my baseball and it's easier for me because I'm in New York now so the Red Sox games don't get blacked out here which mm-hmm. is which is fortunate for me unless they're playing the the Yankees or the Mets but I think it's just it's it's a lot easier to just like sit in my bed and have the game on half of my MacBook screen and have Twitter on the other half going and it's uh it's a different experience because I think when you have something on your computer it's much more it's much more of a intimate experience and you you have mm-hmm. to pay attention to everything on your screen but it's uh television uh, on a on a grander scale, when you're you, when you have like a 50 inch television, it's much more of a passive experience. Sure, sure, yeah. I, uh, on any given night, if I have the Red Sox on, you know, I might be doing something else, working on a story or working on something else that my attention isn't fully focused on the game. So I completely understand what you're saying in terms of having it right there in front of you on the computer. I'm really interested. It, yeah, don't no, continue. Oh. I, I was just going to say, in terms of the, the blackouts, I think, and I say this with no inside information by any means, but I think we're headed to a place where those will eventually go away. I just want to throw that in there for whatever I, that's worth. I think they have to because more and more people, especially our age, just aren't willing to pay for a bazillion channels and pay uh, X amount Absolutely. of money a month. And it's just much easier to, to do everything a la carte because I think – we're very much of the generation where everything is just like personalized towards us, whether that's like in Spotify or Pandora and we get to choose whatever we want to listen to or watch or consume. Uh, and I think everything is just kind of on a, on a grand level beyond just sports is going towards this like personalization. Yeah, that would be, I'm inclined to agree with that assessment. Very good, June. I I really want to see just kind of the shift in baseball culture continue to happen because there was the big firestorm with Bryce Harper and the the bat flipping and, and Jose Batista and how Goose Gossage just kind of went off on that. And it's just for me, I think baseball is just adds most fun when like people aren't taking it so seriously, but also right. take, yeah, also I... taking it seriously in a in a different way. Like they care about winning and all that stuff, but also not taking themselves too seriously. Right. Don't be so self-serious about it. I think Bryce Harper, I'm a, a little bit of a Bryce Harper kick like the rest of the baseball world right now, just in terms of how good and how young he still is. It's, it's nuts. But I think he can be good for the game beyond the numbers in terms of, you know, being that guy who, as he put it, makes baseball fun again. Not that, not that baseball's not fun because baseball's awesome. But uh, in terms of showing the personality and 
having that personal flair and making characters, maybe characters is a bad word because then it sounds so fake, but showing the personalities of the players, that's not just a good thing, but I think a mandatory thing, something that baseball only in the last couple of years has really put a, a re-emphasis on. I think I think baseball's success in many ways is kind of hinged on Harper's success and his ability to be a vocal person in the media because um, when you have guys like LeBron, LeBron is obviously the, this huge superstar and a transcendent talent, but not only that, he's a, a really well-spoken guy. He's really funny, mm-hmm. and he's just bizarre on social media, um, which is a story for another day. But when you... Yeah. For for a couple of years, Mike Trout was just the consensus best player in baseball, and Trout is as vanilla a quote and as vanilla a personality as it gets. Um, and you're, right. And you're not just not going to be getting in the the twelve year old with these bland Mike Trout quotes. You're going to be getting it, get, hooking them in with Bryce Harper sw- like swaggering around the bases. Right. Right. And I, I'm with you there. Not quite ready to say that Mike Trout's not the best player in baseball. Maybe give it 12 months or 18 months sure. or maybe just six months. But uh, in terms of talent as well as personality, it, Harper is going to be, if he isn't already, the face of baseball. As you said, you know, Trout. if Trout was standing behind you in line at a movie or a concert, would you recognize his voice? I don't Probably th- not. I, I don't I, think I don't, so. <laughs> I, I have no idea what he sounds like. I, I have no idea. I might recognize Harper, though. You know, you, you hear him more, and you you probably see him more. He's got that that hip haircut. <laughs> I don't even know what it's called because I'm not hip. But he, he, looks, he looks cool, you know what I mean? Mike Strauss just looks like, an, he, obviously he's an animal of an athlete, but he looks really normal. Bryce Harper looks cool, like, an, like he should be in a boy band. I think it's a really good point. Like, I, I don't think I've ever thought about that. Like, Trot just very much seems like a kid from the New Jersey country, and he's, uh, you know, he, you could you could like imagine Mike Trout at like the convenience store, you know? Yeah. And I don't think I could ever imagine Bryce Harper just like convenient, like just just walking through CVS picking up his uh his uh prescriptions or something. Like, he would just stand <laughs> right. out too much. Yeah, he would with his. With his beard and his flow, and his honestly probably walks around town with eye black. I I don't know. <laughs> it, he's just got like a he's just got like a presence about him, like that. He just yeah, he, he does. Just, he has he, that it factor, right? Which is I think it's a hard thing to pinpoint, and it's not that Trout doesn't have it, because I think Trout's it factor is kind of tangible in a different way. And that he's just so athletic and so good on the field, but Harper has that exact same talent it factor on the field but there's like the it factor off of it which i think is really rare uh and there's only like a handful of athletes that probably have it there's you know lebron right. and steph and um this is the the biased patriots fan of me coming up but like tom brady and aaron Rodgers and jj <laughs> watt um there's only a handful of guys that that are able to carry themselves in and in, in that fashion i think right right i i agree um and I'm curious to see like who else kind of emerges as a face of baseball because I think there was a period where like Andrew McCutcheon was kind of considered that next guy, but I don't think that ever really manifested itself beyond you know the baseball niche media. Like I don't think Andrew McCutcheon is considered like a transcendent sports star. I I, I don't think so either. I don't know, and that might be playing in the relatively small market of Pittsburgh. Obviously, he's very good at what he does. He's one of the best players in baseball, but. 
he doesn't have that that appeal outside of baseball. You know what I mean? Whereas Bryce Harper can really, if not already, I think he can get there in terms of being somebody who's recognizable, not just to baseball fans. Like I think, especially when he's free agent. Yeah. Like I think I think Kershaw and Trout are very much somewhere in the same way. Not just because they both play in Los Angeles, but they're just like both kind of guys, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and 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 they aren't these like distinctive personalities. Like I kind of know, I can kind of hear what Clayton Kershaw sounds like, but that's only because like I've seen so many interviews of him like post throwing a no hitter or something. Like, right? He's so good that it's kind of. It's it's also it's spectacular, but it's also like kind of boring sometimes because he's he's just so good. Right. Yeah, I think I have a better sense of Kershaw's personality, or at least the personality that that he portrays publicly, than I do for Trout. But that might just be a you know Kershaw's been around longer and has had more reasons to be in front of the camera. You know, more occasions to be in front of the camera between his Cy Young interviews with his crew there, or no hitter <laughs> interviews or whatnot. His entourage. Right. Of just bunned up white guys. Right. <laughs> I like I'm really rooting for a guy like Yasiel Puig to finally be consistently good. Cause I think the yep. dude the dude is just like a, an electric personality on the field. And he does things that are just open your eyes and then he also does stuff that's just like mind numbingly stupid. He he does. If he can put his I don't know what what you whatever you want to call it, baseball IQ or common sense. If you can put that together on the field and just be as good as everybody knows he can be, then that personality of his and how funny he is will really have more of a chance to shine through. I loved his tweet the other day oh, yeah. when Jared when the Rams drafted Jared Goff first overall in the NFL draft. Tweet. I don't know how he found it. He must have people that to run his Twitter. But he found a tweet from Goff that said uh, it was from three years ago. It says, I really hope Yasiel Puig gets the fastball on his bridge tomorrow. And then Puig uh, made, uh, quote tweets this and says, Big Huck, welcome to L.A. I show you around, be my guest to Dodgers game. Hashtag Puig, your friend. Hashtag Puig, not late. And that got retweeted. 12,000 times, and I laughed out loud at that. And if he can just be as dynamic as everybody knows he can be, then he could be huge. Who who are your favorite players right now to watch? Oh, to watch? I mean, please got to be up there. Bryce yeah. Harper, Bryce Harper number one. Bryce Harper number one. Uh, between last year and the start he was off to this year, he's, in terms of guys I'd want to watch, not that to say he's necessarily better all around than Trout, but I'd rather, if I had to like, watch a guy that bat, uh, Harper's up there. Giancarlo Stanton. Oh yeah. I'll watch him take batting practice anytime. If if he's gonna be, and I don't get access to Marlins games right now, but when I did, if he was gonna be at bat, I would turn that game on. Uh, and it might just be like a last season thing, but David Ortiz is the same way in terms of you know I'd go out of my way to change the channel when he's about to hit. Uh, I mean, but he's been Harper. unbelievable this year too. Like he's been he's oh, been awesome. Sure, sure. Yeah, he's, he had a, a very great April. I feel like most Aprils, he he's gotten off to very slow starts, and you start to hear the you start to hear it, you know, like oh, like maybe this is maybe Ortiz is finally done, blah blah blah. But we, we didn't even have to have that fake conversation this April. Yeah, it's been it's been pretty fantastic. 
Um, just because, like, the sports radio in Boston just like, can overtake these narratives. Like, with David oh, Price so right bad. now, with David Price right now, I'm not, I don't really listen to that much sports radio anymore just because podcasts and I just, like, right. don't want to deal with that rage on a daily basis. But I can't even imagine what they're saying about David Price right now. Like, Price is, has, by all, uh, sabermetric standards, you know, uh, batting average on balls in play and, and FIP and all this stuff. He's just been really unlucky so far this year. Um, his, right. his FIP, his ex FIP rates in, in the top five in baseball, but he just, the bashing on price this early has been, has been kind of just wait and see. Like this guy is, is a pretty good pitcher. Like there's a reason the Red Sox <laughs> paid him that much money. Right, right. I'm completely with you on that. Obviously, sports talk radio just exists to get people talking, and they have to fill X number of hours every day, so it's mind-numbing most of the time. But, yeah, I mean, anybody who really pays attention can safely say that David Price will almost certainly be all right. But if you aren't smart, <laughs> then it's easy to get caught up in the, uh, the, the frenzy of it. I've been. It's been fun to watch uh, Steven Strasburg so far this year because he's been one of the best pitchers in baseball through five starts. Big sample size, obviously. Um, right. But the rise in Str- the rise of Strasburg and Harper together, I thought was was really fascinating because they came together in this like Strasburg came first and then Harper came right after him, and and mm-hmm. they were kind of viewed as the saviors of the Nationals. And Strasburg hasn't necessarily lived up this like ridiculous hype that people kind of brought upon him but he's been a very good pitcher over the last couple of years um generally speaking and so <laughs> but he's also going to get paid a ton of money this off he's going to get paid regardless of like ace type money this offseason i i'm with you on that he's been very good the last couple seasons and i think people don't necessarily recognize that to the extent that they should because he came in with so much hype uh, with him starting, actually starting to put together early so far the numbers that he is this season, I think if he has that contract year breakout year, then obviously he's, the people might finally say, "Hey, Steven Strasburg finally living up to his, uh, you know, his hyper ceiling or reputation." You know who I love watching on a daily basis? Who? I freaking love watching Mookie Betts, man. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I love Mookie Betts, dude, and, and, and he's and he's worth watching. He's a very good player. He's pretty. He's, he's good at pretty much everything that can happen on a baseball field. It's it's like I I expected there to be a somewhat of a rockier transition to the outfield, and the dude's like a pretty decent fielding outfielder, and just the bat speed. Yep. The bat speed just like makes makes me drool more than anything. It's just like seeing him whip <laughs> his wrist through the, the through the strike zone that quickly. I completely believe that you wholeheartedly feel this way too. <laughs> um, um, I just, I just hope uh, him and Bogarts, you know, as a Red Sox fan, are just in Boston for eternity, and they just never age yeah. and ne- and never get worse. Like, I just hope Bogarts starts hitting for for power, and then if that happens, I'll I'll just be set for life. Right. Right. Yep, I think uh, that is representative of how a large majority of Red Sox fans feel. Um, what have the, what have been your favorite stories so far in the early part of the baseball season? Uh, early stories so far, I mean, how well the White Sox are playing has really caught me by surprise. Uh, 
obviously the going to last year, everybody thought the potential was there given their rotation and offseason additions, and then it, then they fell in the face. Uh, it's the year, it's the Drake LaRoche factor. <laughs> the Drake LaRoche now that he's gone. <laughs> they, they're all inspired to to play in his honor. Ah uh, yes. Hashtag play for Drake. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I don't know what's gotten to them. I don't know if it's going to last. It definitely won't last to the extent, you know, they're not going to play almost 700 baseball the rest of the way. But uh, if they won that rota- won that division, which could be a very competitive division, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Uh, also, Rich Hill. Yes. Massachusetts. He's really State. been something. Yeah. Exactly. St- straight out of Milton? I think so. Question mark. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the, the way his September, uh, yeah, Milton High School, his September last year with the Red Sox and then making, signing a six million dollar contract with the A's last off season, uh, I was very skeptical. As much as you want to root for a guy like that, I was skeptical that he'd be able to put with numbers anything close to what he did last September. But so far, he's off to a, a pretty solid start and. I mean, why not just ride, ride that for as long as it'll go, I guess, right? One of my favorite statistics about Rich Hill is that he posted a 1.6 war last year in four starts for Boston. Like, that's how good he was. Wow. I did not know that. That's crazy. That is crazy. I really liked, uh, I think I first read this in Jeff Sound column on him when he signed with the A's that the $6 million he'll make this season is more than he made in his entire big league career combined. <sighs> Wow. Yeah. And and what's most interesting, I think, about Rich Hill is he's not young. He's 36 years old. and he's, oh, been, he, he's old. He's been around, too. Yep, yep. And, and he's been... And he was just... He, I mean, he was kind of a... He was, I th- he was a pretty well-regarded prospect coming up for the Cubs, and he didn't entirely pan out. He posted one year of a 3.2 wins above replacement in, in 2007, but... The fact that he's starting to put it together now, it seems, is at 36, which is you know, which is when you expect pitchers to be falling apart, is is just nuts. Right, right, and, and not to change the subject on you, but along those lines, in terms of pitchers being old but somehow still being really good, John Lackey. <laughs> John John Lackey's fascinating, just because he, he's fascinating. He was able to turn around that narrative in Boston because he was for probably like the three three years. First three years of that contract, he was an overpaid schlub who looked like he he uh, he showed up his teammates all the time and and all this other stuff. And then you know he put together a couple good seasons in Boston, helped win the World Series, and now he's just he's just sick. He's just awesome again. Yeah, he's he's very good. And what was his deal like? Thirty two million dollars for two years with the Cubs, I think. Something like that. Yeah. And and uh. What, over the the winter, I talked to Bronson Arroyo, who at the time was coming back from Tommy John surgery, and I didn't. I don't know if this has ever happened before, but he he called John Lackey uh, a, per, a best case scenario in terms of an older guy coming back from Tommy John, uh, putting up good numbers, and then signing a multi year deal for good money. <laughs> I just thought it was hilarious that the guy was pointing to John Lackey of all people and saying, "That's what I want to do." <laughs> Man, I miss uh, I miss Bronson Arroyo, his acoustic guitar albums, and uh, the Willie Mopena trade, and him hitting home runs. The good yep. old days. 
he's something. That Willie Mopena trade, I think my mom, my mom knows very little about baseball and remembers very few players. Like she'll she'll know who David Ortiz or Manny Ramirez is. But every once in a while, she'll, she'll come up to me and be like, remember Willie Mopena? I'm like, why is he the guy of all guys to remember? Well, I think everybody remembers him now because he gave his cleats to Doug Mirabelli when Doug Mirabelli showed up <laughs> at Fenway Park. <laughs> uh, that dude just like hit baseball so far. And it's really sad that he just didn't end up being anything good. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Oh, the good old days. Um Anything, any last words, Tim? I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm still at the point here in baseball season where a month in and everything's still so new and it hits seven o'clock and it's like, all right, there's another, there's more games on today. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's still got that fresh feeling and that wears off every year at some point where the excitement of 705 isn't quite there on an everyday basis. But right now it still is. So you got to enjoy that. I'm really interested to see like if some of these early season hot stories uh, end up manifesting itself in anything greater. Like I'm, maybe maybe it's just like the cynic in me, but I'm very skeptical of of Trevor's story, and I've been skeptical of guys like Travis Shaw. Um, although I'm oh, starting to inch I- off inch inch onto that bandwagon in, in recent days, but I'm not sure. Sure, sure. But I'm I'm not sure that Trevor's story is going to be anything other than like an April a big April story. Right, right, and I mean he, he was a he was a good prospect, obviously, but nobody expects him to hit uh, what was it six home runs in his first six games and nine in April or something like that. That's not the player who he is, so I'm sure it'll come down to something more realistic. But enjoy it while it lasts, I guess. Yeah, um, Tim, thanks for uh, taking the time. Good to talk to you, buddy. Thank you, June. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. Hope uh, hope the uh, Mirabelli story does wonders for you. All right, thank you. All right, man. Have a good one. You are you melody. I hear you all the time. It really gets to me. It's always on my mind. You are my favorite song. So that's the show for this week. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for Tim Healy. Uh, Tim's a really good dude. Uh, thanks to him for coming on to the show. If you guys haven't listened to the show before, make sure to hit the subscribe button on wherever you listen to your podcast. Leave a rating for the show over on iTunes. Uh, you can follow Tim on Twitter at Tim B. Healy, H-E-A-L-E-Y. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Bartolopod, and you can also follow me on Twitter at uh, I am June Lee. Uh, thanks again for listening, everybody. And uh, next week, we're hoping, fingers crossed, to have a, a pretty big baseball writer guest on. Um, but uh, those details aren't finalized, so I don't want to spill it yet. But uh, you guys are going to want to listen to that. So until next time, guys, uh, have a good one. Your love is simple, baby. You've been on my mind yeah. since you're watching me. I do it all the time. Yeah. Since you say you love me, it's just a fire. Yeah. It's just a fire.